0: I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is nine o'clock on the dot AM Central Daylight Time. It is Wednesday, September the 18th, 2019. This is episode 139 of Bitcoin. And we're just going to start with at Not Grubel's tweet, who says, They knew Ethereum wouldn't scale, yet marketed it as scalable for years, completely unethical and dishonest. Now, let's read the screenshot from Joe Lubin that Not Grubel's has put in this tweet. Quote, you can think of Ethereum 1.0 as a prototype. We had to release something that we knew wouldn't be scalable to prove that you could build decentralized applications. Quote by aforementioned Joe Lubin, one of the main Ethereum guys. So they knew it wouldn't scale. Uh, they built it as scalable for years, just like, you know, Not Grubbs was laying out. And not Google's is completely correct. It's completely dishonest. It's completely misleading. It was factually unethical. It's ridiculous. The kind of chicanery that goes on in this space is quite embarrassing at times. And this is one of the most embarrassing events that I've ever seen. So moving on up into the stack, um, there was something that I tweeted out. I just wanted to, uh, uh, Say it out here live was that sort, of, and this is sort of like a customer service issue. Um, every kind of get into why at, there are times when you know rooms rooms full of people will get into a meeting. Like you know, we used to have like library wide meetings at Texas Tech University's library. And sometimes a question would come up that would really stump people. Um, And those meetings would all be like, you know, the mass employee meetings and all the admin and all that kind of stuff. And every once in a while you'd hear a question asked is, um, who in this room is customer facing? And like, I don't know, like anybody, you know, any of the librarian would raise their hand, but a lot of people would actually not put up their hand. I put up my hand because everybody's your customer. If somebody asks you to do anything, they're your customer, whether you're providing them a service or a product or just kind words. I don't know. It doesn't matter. It's the, the thing about customer service is the mindset should be this. If someone contacts you, your first response better be, how may I be of service? Because service is everything. And one of the reasons why we find ourselves in a, relatively kind of shitty environment as of over the last few years is that there are really people who believe that they don't have any customers. You know, they, they work, uh, like they're a stalker at uh Whole Foods or something like that. Yes, they have a customer. It may not be the customers walking into the store to buy a sandwich, but it is to the rest of their, they, the, the rest of their team is their, is their customer base. You know, it's all working together. So, how may I be of service? Should be a question that that you're okay with with you know asking when anybody approaches you about damn near anything. All right, all right, all right. Now, um, I ran across. I'm not much of a poetry reader. I have read quite a bit of poetry, but that was kind of in college where they kind of forced you to. Uh, and I'm not a big poetry fan. But I ran across a poet called Mary Oliver, and she has uh, this thing called instructions for living a life. One, pay attention. Two, be astonished. Three, tell about it. And it's interesting because, you know, in context, her life, she died very old. Uh, She actually died this year. and I think she was 97. So she kicked ass for a long time. But uh, her her uh, childhood was very dark and she ended up writing poetry and or she ended up writing poetry about her life's journey on trying to find joy in every single thing. Not kind of like once a day or, you know, you know, trying to keep a stiff upper lip and, and have a positive attitude. No, it was literally looking at a piece of paper and and doing your damnedest to find beauty in that piece of paper. And a lot of her poetry is like that, but I, but this one is, is good. You know, pay attention, be astonished by all of the things that you see and tell everybody else about it, you know, spread the joy. All right. Rhythm Trader is saying that Bitcoin addresses worth more than 10 BTC or about a hundred thousand dollars worth of value just hit an all time high. Everyone is playing in a game of musical chairs. Music is about to stop playing and these hodlers have already got their chairs reserved. Can you say the same? So there's been this this whole narrative that's been around for a while that only four wallets hold most of the Bitcoin, and you know it's it's unequal you know unequal wealth distribution and the same BS that we're always you know we're always subjected to. And you know it's it's good that Rhythm Trader is kind of keeping a, a uh, his finger on the pulse of this. Because as as attrition in uh, in the whale pool, I'll I'll call it, occurs, and by attrition I mean they made a bad trade and lost some Bitcoin, um, in, you know tried to short or do do whatever it is that they do on trading, and you know it it trickles out, and enough is trickled out that uh, wallets with more than ten BTC have hit an all time high, so you know that's. That's kind of important, guys, because it's going against it's 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 buttressing against that argument that Bitcoin is unfair, that has an unfair distribution, because you either got in or you didn't. It's that that's not an unfair situation. You know, like early adopters are rewarded, generally speaking, although you can lose your ass, but still. Just saying. It's getting that that whole wealth di, uh, distribution thing. The, the organism itself is redistributing uh, uh, energy throughout its own system, and it's doing so in an or, in an organic fashion. It may take a lot longer than people want, but you know people are generally born impatient. So there we go. Um, let's see what do we got here. Hold on for one sec. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It's this uh, this tweet from Jordan Maglitch. Uh, on Twitter is uh, at Ponzi Tracker, and it's, it's, a, it's a small tweet storm, but it's important. SEC and DOJ filed civil and criminal fraud charges against a Florida attorney for writing false opinion letters that an investment scheme's notes were not securities. Could this be a blueprint to pursue lawyers issuing similar opinions for ICOs of digital tokens? And then he gives a, a link to the, uh, uh, the paper that he's, he's actually talking about, but he goes on. In the second one, he says, Since there apparently is some interest in this possibility, here are some other thoughts. First, this is not the first or last time regulators have been interested in gatekeepers like attorneys or broker dealers, allegedly straying from their duties. The SEC's Microcap Fund Task Force has charged multiple attorneys for their roles in furthering microcap frauds, including authoring opinion letters that were used to remove trading restrictions from penny stocks. And writing misleading false registration statements. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton insinuated in early 2018 that the scrutiny towards gatekeepers was not limited to the microcap world, indicating that the commission was on high alert with respect to the role of securities attorneys in initial coin offerings. Be aware, people. Many securities lawyers were contacted back in 2014 2016 about authoring opinion letters that would arguably create an advice of counsel defense for proceeding with initial coin offerings without registering the digital token many of the microcap fraud actions targeted attorneys that provided knowingly false opinion letters and many of these those attorneys were also allegedly involved in larger operations to create and sell shell companies via reverse mergers. Thus, the role played by the attorney in the ICO, as well as their motivations and form of compensation, will make this a fact specific determination. If you are a lawyer and you knowingly wrote, okay, this is me talking, if you knowingly wrote a letter of opinion that, hey, X shitcoin is okay, you are probably going to get in trouble. I'm just saying, man. It, Engaging in, you know, you engage in shit coinery at your own risk. The the dude that they're talking about, this Florida attorney, he's 72 years old. And this is the way he's going to end his career. Just let that roll around in your head for a little while. All right. So that pretty much does it for community stuff. Let's talk, uh, get into the news. We've got a CoinDesk article, Bull Bitcoin joins Blockstream's liquid exchange network. This is written by Anya Betakova, September the 15th, 2018. Liquid, a second layer tech for Bitcoin created by Blockstream, just onboarded another crypto partner. The sidechain for faster BTC payments now has around 30 members including Bitfinex, BitMEX, OKCoin and other exchanges with the total of $900,000 moving around on the network. Blockstream's chief strategy officer, Samson Moe, told Coindesk. Now Canadian Bitcoin exchange, BullBitcoin, is joining the platform. The new partnership will allow the users of BullBitcoin to interact with other exchanges on the network. Tentatively scheduled on the early 2020... The integration of Liquid Tech into Bull Bitcoin's operations will require some effort from the exchange's tech team, Bull Bitcoin CEO Francis Pulio said. "Quote: We're making sure that we have this backup layer. We want to be, to make sure Bitcoin succeeds, and this is our way to participate in strengthening the network," Pouliot told CoinDesk. <clears throat> As a part of the partnership, Bull Bitcoin is going to issue its own asset on the Liquid network, Canadian dollar peg token dubbed LCAD. <clears throat> Which is supposed to be used as the exchange's voucher for buying Bitcoin. So there you go. I mean, Blockstream just onboarded one of our favorite companies, Bull Bitcoin. Congratulations to Francis and all of the crew over at Bull Bitcoin for getting this shit done. All right, what's up next here? Wells Fargo to pilot dollar linked stablecoin for internal settlement. My God, the irony is strong with this one. This is Coindesk's Ian Allison and Daniel Palmer writing September the 17th. U.S.-based financials giant Wells Fargo is developing a U.S. dollar-linked stablecoin that will run on the firm's first blockchain platform, dubbed Wells Fargo Digital Cash. The tokenized dollar will be used in a pilot initially for internal internal settlement across the company's businesses. The firm said in a press release on Tuesday that the digital token will enable, to, will enable to settle internal cross-border payments across its global network. Its international locations will also be able to move funds between each other using the token. As banking services become increasingly digital, Wells Fargo sees, quote, a growing number or I'm sorry, a growing demand to further reduce friction regarding traditional borders. And today's technology puts us in a strong position to do that, said Lisa Frazier, head of the innovation group at the company. Wells Fargo says its proprietary digital ledger tag <laughs> platform will enable it to move money in near real time and without impact to the underlying account, transaction postings or reconciliation. Infrastructure. "End quote. It will also allow the firm's inter- international locations to move funds outside normal operating hours, remove the need for third-party payment intermediaries, and cut the time and costs associated with such transactions. When contacted by CoinDesk, well said its DLT is built on Corda Enterprise, the paid-for enterprise version of R3's blockchain technology. Quote, R3 Corda Enterprise was designed by and for financial institutions. It is a distributed ledger solution that allows for appropriate data confidentiality controls, scales to bank transaction volumes and throughput, and supports an information security design that is compatible with Wells Fargo's industry-regulated standards, In quote, said bank spokesman Roger Cabrera. Obvious parallels can be drawn between what Wells Fargo is testing out in J.P. Morgan's JPM coin and its interbank information network, which this week added Deutsche Bank to the 300 other plus banks on the network. <clears throat> this raises the at times uncomfortable question of interoperability since the JPM's interbank payment system and coin are all built on Quorum, the private version of Ethereum the bank has open sourced. Corda and Quorum do not talk to each other. When asked about this, Cabrera said regarding JPM corn, corn, <laughs> We'll leave it that way. Wells Fargo Digital Cash runs on a proprietary internal DLT network that is not connected to any other digital cash solutions emerging in the financial services market today. The pilot slated for next year will start with transfers of U.S. dollars but is expected to expand to other currencies. Eventually, it also aims to reach all Wells Fargo branches worldwide. Frazier said, quote, We believe DLT holds promise for a variety of use cases, and we've energized Oh, sorry, we're energized to take this significant step in applying the technology to banking in a material and scalable way. Wells Fargo Digital Cash has the potential to enable Wells Fargo to remove barriers to real-time financial interactions across multiple accounts and in multiple marketplaces around the world, end quote. Wells Fargo has previously launched other blockchain projects, including a banking prototype and a trade finance platform aimed at the cotton market. It also invested in blockchain finance startup Axani. over and above internal settlement. The firm said it plans to use its DLT platform for multiple other applications. So why is this a little bit ironic? Well, this tweet from back in July, uh, July the 12th, there was a, a man, there is a man named uh, Litecoin Moses, and he's tweeted out and included... Um, It looks like he included at ask underscore Wells Fargo in his tweet about this. He says, something fishing is going on with my bank, Wells Fargo. I can't buy crypto on Cash App or Coinbase. I tried to attach my debit card and it said card not found, and I just used it to pay my bills. Anyone else having this issue? All right. So somehow or another, Ask Wells Fargo wrote back and said, thanks for reaching out to us. Unfortunately, Wells Fargo does not allow transactions involving cryptocurrency. And what did we just read? This was in July, okay? Not July of like four years ago. No, it was July 12th, 2019. Ask Wells Fargo said is telling this gentleman that they do not allow transactions involving cryptocurrency. So there you go. It's almost as if... Everybody's catching on fire and they can do nothing about it. It's like shit. If we don't if we don't do something, then we're not going to be able to do anything in the future. So the virus is spreading. It's just the wrong kind of viruses. <laughs> okay. Oh, oh yeah, this is great. Coindesk is writing, ex CFTC chair, crypto dad, Giancarlo, joins Digital Chamber Trade Group. <clears throat> Nicholas Day writing September the 17th. Former Commodity Futures Trading Commission Chairman J. Christopher Giancarlo has joined the advisory board of the Chamber of Digital Commerce, a trade group focused on blockchain and crypto policy in the United States. Giancarlo helmed the CFTC for two years following a three year stint as a commissioner with the agency. Under his watch, the CFTC allowed the first Bitcoin futures products to enter the space. Most famously, Giancarlo told the United States Senate Banking Committee that, in his view, do no harm is the right overarching approach for the blockchain space. He recommended appro- His recommended approach earned him the, crypt- the nickname Crypto Dad" from the community, a moniker he has embraced. In a statement Tuesday, he said, quote, the chamber is at the epicenter of this emerging field of technology. That can only be described as a movement, end quote, adding, quote, I'm looking forward to joining the group of advisory board leaders from many fields and areas of expertise, whom are already working to promote the adoption of this transformative technology. It is my hope that together we can streamline and modernize the regulatory environment and encourage further blockchain innovation, end quote. Ann Boring, the chamber's founder and president, said in a statement that Giancarlo would add his substantial knowledge to the group's board, citing his experience with the financial markets and his past efforts in encouraging advancements in technology. Quote, we are entering a new phase of blockchain advocacy, she told Coindesk, as the world's leaders are convening to discuss the future of international financial and monetary system. Crypto and blockchain are increasingly playing a key role in these discussions. Christian Carlo's <clears throat> valuable expertise will be critical as we continue to move the industry forward. End "Quote," The chamber, founded in 2014, recently celebrated its fifth birthday by inviting its members to meet with members of Congress and conge- congressional staffers to educate lawmakers about the potential uses and benefits of the technology. In February... The group called on the U.S. government to develop a national framework framework for blockchain and cryptocurrency legislation. <clears throat> the U.S. in that in, yeah, yeah. that the U.S. risks falling behind other nations if it does not. Boring has said in the past. Since leaving the CFTC, Giancarlo has also joined the board of directors of the American Financial Exchange, an electronic interbank lending system. So. Chris, it was sad when when he left the CFTC because we loved him so much, but it doesn't it, it looks like he just he's not gonna be able to stay away from the space. It did not take him very long at all to get right back into the saddle. Coindesk is writing, uh, will Bitcoin's price rally after a Federal Reserve cut? This is Omar Godbull writing September the seventeenth. Bitcoin is down again, but some observers believe the losses could be reversed after a U.S. interest rate cut expected Wednesday, which is today, y'all. It may have already happened by the time I'm recording this. The leading cryptocurrency market, uh, the leading cryptocurrency by market value fell to lows below $10,100 yesterday, making it a downside break of the narrowing price range created <clears throat> created near 10,300 in the 3 days to September 15th as of writing btc is changing hands at 10,150 on bitstamp representing a 1.4% drop on a 24-hour basis so the bears have gained the upper hand in the last 24 hours despite record high minor confidence and a deeper drop may unfold in the next 24 hours the decline however could be could end up tap, trapping sellers on the wrong side of the market according to some observers who expect BTC to benefit from an impending 25 basis point US rate cut on Wednesday for instance nigel green Founder and CEO of Global Financial Advisory Giant DeVere Group believes the cryptocurrency will pick up a strong bid in response to the Federal Reserve's rate cut as the reduction in borrowing costs will lower the yield return or the yield on the US dollar. Meanwhile, Anthony Pompliano, founder and partner at Morgan Creek Digital Assets, tweeted in August that BTC could fly high if the Fed rates cut Fed rate cuts are followed by a government buying program quantitative easing former Wall Street journal trader <clears throat> and journalist Max Kaiser also believes that the fed's continued monetary easing would send Bitcoin to a hundred thousand. Rate cuts are inflationary in nature, meaning they reduce the purchasing power of fiat currencies. Hence, this is why we Bitcoin. Oh, I'm sorry. I read that wrong. Hence, there is a general consensus in the crypto market that Federal Reserve's monetary easing will bode well for Bitcoin, which is deflationary in nature and is said to undergo a mining reward halving in less than one year. Bitcoin, however, has seldom taken cues from the Fed's actions in the past. For instance, the Fed hiked rates by 25 basis points in December 2015. That was the first hike since 2006. The central bank delivered another rate hike in December 2016 and hiked rate cuts four times in 2017. Even so, BTC broke into a bull market with a convincing move above 300 at the end of October 2015 and went on to hit the record high of 20,000 by December of 2017. As such, the probability of BTC responding positively to tomorrow's rate cut is debatable. Also, traditional markets have priced in a 25 basis point rate cut and the uh, FX markets will likely dump the U.S. dollar only if the Fed cuts rates by 50 basis points or signals aggressive easing over the near term. In that case, the anti-dollar sentiment may feed into the cryptocurrency markets. Bitcoin fell to ten thousand sixty on Monday, signaling a downside break of the narrowing price range of the back to back inside bar candlesticks, as discussed yesterday. as of now, prices are sitting on the ascending trend line support at ten thousand one hundred and twenty. A break lower would <clears throat> would further strengthen the bear grip and allow a deeper drop to nine thousand eight hundred and fifty five on the higher side, the bearish lower high of ten thousand nine hundred and fifty-six created on August the twentieth remains the level to beat for the Bulls. That level could come into play if the rising trend line support fuels a price bounce above ten thousand four hundred and fifty-eight. The probability of a downside break is as high as last week's falling wedge breakout on the four-hour chart. Failed to draw bids. In fact, the breakout ended up creating another bearish lower high at ten thousand four hundred and fifty eight. I love this part. Disclosure: the author holds no cryptocurrency asset at the time of writing. <laughs> okay, so uh, yeah, Fed. You know, we saw some some repo action yesterday, and I mean, I clearly I don't fully understand it, but the implications seem. Pretty bad in, insofar as, if you know, when I try to go find out what this stuff means, what I essentially find out is that we just printed $58 billion and apparently a few days before we printed damn near the same amount. So we've injected $100 billion, you know, in the last 24, 48 hours into the United States, cracking foundations of the financial system. Again, this is why we Bitcoin. Okay, Coin Telegraph's Helen Parts is writing that the Blackst- uh, uh, quote from Blackstone CEO, blockchain is good but odd for creating money. God, just I don't. Some people. Okay, Blackstone CEO Steve Schwartzman, one of the world's richest people, likes blockchain but thinks that applying it to money is odd. Quote: Someone needs to control currencies. End quote. In a Fortune interview on September the 17th, Schwarzman expressed his negative stance on Bitcoin, explaining that building money using blockchain technology is pretty odd, and he does not have much interest in the cryptocurrency because it is hard to understand. So is frickin' aeronautics, but that, you know, people actually learned it so they could build planes. I mean, my God, dude, stop being so frickin' lazy. The 72-year-old billionaire blamed the decentralized character of Bitcoin and said it was raised in a world where someone needs to control currencies. Schwarzman came out in support of centralization, arguing that global jurisdictions need to control currencies for a reason. According to the businessman, governments want to make sure the economy is as insulated as it can be from excesses. Oh my God, this is is hard to read. Another aspect includes their responsibility to curb the proliferation of dirty money. Warning that Bitcoin only encourages criminal behavior, Schwarzman said, quote, I may be a limited thinker, but that's a problem. If they could solve that problem and also the problem of controlling the money supply, then it might be okay. Schwartzman, who has an estimated net worth of $17.7 billion, expressed support of blockchain technology, nonetheless adding, quote, blockchain technology is a very good idea and it will end up being adopted because it's good technology. Applying it to the creation of money is sort of, for my taste, pretty odd, end quote. While Schwarzman considers Bitcoin and the whole billion crypto market to be awed. Anthony Pompliano, founder of crypto investment firm Morgan Creek Digital Assets, shared a different perspective. He wrote, quote, It is wild to think a loosely coordinated group of volunteers around the world have potentially built the next global reserve currency. Meanwhile, American venture capitalist investor Tim Draper recently cited Bitcoin's complexity of use as the main impediment to mass adoption. However, he added that BTC will remain the currency of choice in the long term because fiat currencies are subject to political influence and constant devaluation. So, I mean, just think about this. He says that he he can't really understand Bitcoin, so it's bad. But he apparently understands blockchain, and it's good. This is narrative. Oh, it like in, we were talking about narrative, either Monday or Friday show, how to spot it and how to get away from it. Warning, here's the sentence, warning that Bitcoin only encourages criminal behavior. Okay? And then he goes on to say that he doesn't understand Bitcoin, but he does understand blockchain. Okay, this entire thing, whatever Schwarzman said, it's all bullshit. Yeah, he may have $17.7 billion. He may be the smartest person in the world, but he's, he, he screwed this up. He's using narrative and he's contradicting himself. So I just call straight up bullshit. I'm not listening to a damn word. The man says coin desks. Nicholas Day is writing that uh, VanEck and SolidX withdraw the the Bitcoin ETF proposal from SEC review. Don't get all sad, people. This is not all that bad. (coughs) CBOE BZX exchange withdrew its VanEck SolidX Bitcoin exchange traded fund proposal on Tuesday. According to a filing dated September 17th, a proposed rule change to publicly list shares of the VanEck SolidX... Bitcoin trust was withdrawn on September the 13th. The decision on the proposal had already been delayed a number of times, and the United States Securities and Exchange Commission faced a final deadline of October the 18th to determine whether to approve or reject what could have been one of the first Bitcoin ETFs in the country. The news comes just weeks after Van Eck and SolidX began offering shares of the trust to qualified institutional buyers. Under a Rule 144A exemption, in the nearly three weeks since first announcing the product, one basket of four Bitcoin worth around. $40,000 $40,000 was traded. VanEck appears to have changed near-term plans very recently. In an interview on September the 4th, VanEck, head of ETF product, Ed Lopez, told Coindesk that the company would continue to pursue an, an exchange-traded fund product, explaining, quote, we still strongly believe the marketplace and many investors would be better served to have a regulated product out there. And this is just one small step towards that. And right now, it happens to be only available to institutions. Tuesday's filing marks the second time Vanex and SolidX withdrew the proposed ETF. The companies withdrew the same ETF proposal in January after a prolonged government shutdown threatened to force a rejection. The SEC is still reviewing two other Bitcoin ETF proposals. One filed by Wilshire Phoenix would include both Bitcoin and U.S. Treasury bonds in the trust and faces an initial deadline at the end of September, while the other filed by Bitwise Asset Management with NYSE ARCA will be approved or rejected on October the 13th. Bitwise most recently announced that BNY Mellon would act as the transfer agent for its ETF, after this article was published, VanEck Director of Digital Asset Strategies, Gabor Gerback's tweeted, quote, We are committed to support Bitcoin and Bitcoin-focused financial innovation. Bringing to market a physical, liquid, and insured ETF remains a top priority. We continue to work closely with regulators and market participants to get one step closer every day. So, yeah, they pulled it second time. And, I, you know, who knows what it actually means. Maybe they just got bored You know, with with waiting for the government dragging their feet, you know, and and it kind of actually also doesn't look good that they've only got one basket of four Bitcoin that's traded in the three weeks since they announced their product, Uh, you know, because that kind of signals that there's not a whole lot of institutional um, buy in. Now, we we always want to believe that the institutions are coming, but we can't ignore we can't ignore the fact that only four Bitcoin have been, you know, moved in that in that, um, under that rule, one forty four a, and, you know, but again, I mean, this, this has happened so many times before starting with the Vi I believe deny, you know, either it gets denied or it gets pulled or, you know, there's been several denials and, and a lot of people have pulled their, their ETF proposals and Bitcoin just continues to soldier on. So from, that's why I'm saying I'm, I'm not all that, not all that sad about it. Um, and quite frankly, I don't think you guys should be either. Just it's it's a we're all in a holding pattern as the price just bounces around ten thousand. We're just sitting here, you know, kind of fig- trying to figure out what's going on, and that's just the way it is. However, one thing has changed: CoinDesk to move into same building as owner Digital Currency Group. This is Coindesk's Josh, uh, John Biggs writing September the 17th. Employees at cryptocurrency news publication Coindesk were told Tuesday that the firm is moving into office space in the same building as its parent company, DCG, DCG or Digital Currency Group, a transition that will take place in March of 2020 in an email sent to employees as first ever to Coindesk's entire staff. DCG founder and CEO Barry Silbert outlined four reasons for the move, vowing that while seeking to create new business synergies with the media company, one of three wholly owned subsidiaries, the parent would continue to respect and strengthen the editorial independence of the publication founded in 2013. (laughs) The other two subsidiaries, Grayscale Investments and Genesis Trading, work out of the DCG office building in Manhattan. Quote, we will build a state-of-the-art office, Silbert wrote. Essentially, the only teams we won't meet are with the editorial staff and the content professionals who build the event agendas, end quote. We are 100% committed to preserving that independence, he continued. The lease was signed Tuesday. A representative of the building's owner, the FAIL organization, had previously indicated to, it expected a deal on the office space to close this week. In an email in his email to employees, Silbert specified that CoinDesk's new offices would be on a separate floor of the building from DCG. The 9,000 square foot office space was formerly used by Luminary Media, a podcast streaming platform. CoinDesk has to has to date operated out of the WeWork offices all in Manhattan. Still, Silbert was clear that there had been a material change in the dynamic between the two companies, adding, quote, "...we are committed to investing significant resources into Coindesk so that we can retain our talent, hire new voices, build great new products, continue to host high-end conferences, and continue to produce the best journalism in the industry. But there should be no doubt in anyone's minds about our view on supporting an influential, truly independent newsroom." End quote. He said, I absolutely believe having Coindesk in the same building is a critical step for the sustained growth of DCG and Coindesk. A representative for DCG specified that he expects the offices to have their own security passes, which would restrict which floors employees of each company can access the decision follows a weeks-long period of opposition from some employees of Coindesk. Concerns about the move and its impact on, impact on Coindesk's ability to operate as an independent publication has been expressed directly to the company's leadership in two signed emails as well as a face-to-face meeting last month. The move is seen as a break from the historical geographic separation between the two firms as outlined by Coindesk's editorial policy, which reads, quote, we work in separate offices and maintain strict policies on editorial independence and transparency. End quote. Coindesk has maintained offices in a separate building from DCG ever since the industry investment firm, which has a stake of more than one hundred has a stake in more than one hundred and forty-five crypto and blockchain focused startups, acquired Coindesk in late 2015 from founder and angel investors Shaquille Khan. The firm was subsequently run by CoinDesk managing director Ryan Selkis, formerly director of growth at DCG. He was later succeeded by Kevin Worth, CoinDesk CEO. A preliminary decision to approve the move announced Tuesday was reached on August twenty-fourth, uh, on August fourteenth, between Worth and members of DCG. News of that decision quickly spawned an internal meeting on August the twenty-sixth, that which Worth took questions from CoinDesk staff about the proposed decision. At the time, Worth said that he had temporarily paused the office move pending a discussion of concerns. At the meeting, both New York-based and international employees voiced their worries that the move could harm Coindesk's reputation. Staffers outlined the potential risks posed to the company in a follow-up letter addressed to Worth, which stated, quote, These costs include the possible reputational damage to Coindesk, a deterioration of reader trust, and an opening for competitors to undermine our standing as the industry's leading news provider the move would also make it harder for us to recruit and retain top talent, and it would make it more difficult to work with diverse sources across the industry who may not want to attend a meeting in the same building as DCG, end quote. Twenty-nine of Coindesk's roughly 50 employees signed the email. In response to that letter, Worth said there was no specific time frame for the decision. We'll have a chance to talk again at the all-hands on September 17th, he said in an email. On Tuesday, Worth sought to position the finalized move as one that's in the best interest of the company, telling Coindesk, quote, Coindesk will continue to produce the finest independent journalism in the industry. In a preparation for the office move in 2020, earlier today, I asked some of our editorial colleagues to form a committee... That will recommend specific principles and controls to maintain the complete editorial independence of CoinDesk. I look forward to receiving those recommendations. In quote. And then it goes on into the absolute full email that was sent by Barry Silbert. So what what was not actually said in anywhere in this uh, uh, this article, nor was it said anywhere in the Worth's reply to the. Uh, employees, nor was it said by the employees themselves. The word you're looking for is conflict of interest. Conflict of interest should have been all over this thing, but it wasn't. Wasn't mentioned once. Again, let's get into what the the staffer's problems is. Reputational damage, deterioration of reader trust, opening for competitors, undermine our standards. And blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, what you're worried about is the fact that this is a conflict of interest and you're going to be a mouthpiece and have already been kind of a mouthpiece for shit coinery since 2013. I mean, this is just mind boggling. I mean, if Barry Silver, what Barry Silbert should have done is just keep an investment in CoinDesk and either get them new offices in a completely different building or let them stay at WeWork. The whole thing about putting them into the same building as DCG, I don't know, man. I don't I don't buy it. I think this is a huge conflict of interest. And this entire article is just theater. That's what this article is. It's just absolutely 100% theater. Okay. Uh, Let's get into some Binance stuff here. Um, Binance US launches registration today. Okay, so this is your questions answered, Binance US. uh, And this was like launches registration tomorrow, which is now today because this blog post was written on September the 17th. Launching tomorrow, Binance U.S. is a fast and secure digital asset marketplace delivering the world's leading digital asset trading technology speed and experience to everyday users in America. Ahead of registration, we've answered some of your questions you've been asking. So, the first question here is, who will be able to register for an account at Binance U.S. at launch? Now, remember, guys, Binance U.S. is Binance in the United States. Keep that in mind as we read the following. We are rolling out Binance.us gradually across America. At launch, new users with a valid government ID and social security number will be able to register for Binance US in most US states, excluding the following states Alabama, Alaska, Connecticut, Florida, Georgia, Hawaii, Idaho, Louisiana, New York, North Carolina, Texas, Vermont, and Washington. And I'm going to stop right there because Binance US has only 80% of the states, actually a little bit less. I I find that, I find that seated in hilarity and I don't know how they're going to get the, the, you know, these states, but this, this to me is not Binance U.S. or at least not what they were said. It was supposed to be for the United States, not 80% of them. It's kind of ridiculous. So, if you are a, a resident of any one of those states, uh, either, you're either going to have to wait or you're not going to get it at all. And chances are good, you know, New York and Texas, uh, Washington, Vermont, and Louisiana, and Idaho being mentioned, I, I doubt it. I They're probably just going to just say no, but time will tell. But launching with only 80% efficacy, Of your brand name, Binance US, just seems like a public relations kind of shitstorm. Anyway, that's going to do it for your morning roundup. Bitcoins, or rather, cryptocurrency vital statistics brought to you by bitinfocharts.com. Bitcoin is at a price of 10,186. Looks like we have a high over at GDAX at 10,197. And where's my low? It's over at Bitstamp at 10,174. So pretty damn tight. 361,000 transactions were made over the last 24 hours, giving us uh, average transactions per hour of 15,000. That's where I like to see it. Uh, 1.15 million BTC have been sent over that 24 hour period with an average being sent per hour of 48,320 BTC with an average transaction value of 3.21 BTC or in the median transaction value of 0.034 BTC or about 350 bucks block times just a bit low at nine minutes and 21 seconds. 2 sorry 0.24 BTC are being taken as fees every block and 38 BTC have been taken in fees over the last 24 hours. We've had a hash rate adjustment of -7.91 bringing us to 8 or 7.91%. Sorry. Bringing us down to 88.5 exahashes per second. Last commit to the Git or last commit to the GitHub uh, repository for Bitcoin was done sometime this morning. Ethereum is at two fourteen. Bcash is at three thirty one. Litecoin is at seventy six. BSV is at one twenty eight. Ethereum Classic is at six and a half. And Dogecoin got got some love. He's at back up at 0.0028. zero point zero zero two eight with twenty six thousand transactions. Doge stomps on no one. Sorry guys. I always liked it when they were able to walk all over some of these other things but it's just not doing it now. Let's see what the mempool looks like. This is mempool.space. Yeah, we, we got full blocks. We didn't last night. I was looking at it last night and there were some like not unfull blocks and there was one that was damn near empty, had like 11 transactions in it. But these seem nominal. We are sixteen blocks deep into the mempool at fifteen. Oh no, that make that sixteen thousand unconfirmed transactions. So quite a bit of movement going on. There's your vitals. I don't normally do jazz. But some of the some of the jazz from like the the golden age of jazz, especially, I have a really really soft spot in my heart for. Uh, but pro- probably none more of a of a soft spot in my heart than Duke Ellington's Caravan. <laughs>
1: Upon our desert caravan Sleep upon my shoulder as we creep Across the sand so we may keep This memory of our caravan Because this is so exciting so inviting, resting in my arms, as we thrill to the magic charms of you beside me here beneath the blue. Our dream of love is coming true Up on our desert caravan.
0: clearly that wasn't Duke Ellington and his orchestra themselves playing it because it's really, really difficult to find a really a, a high quality recording that was done in like, you know, that song was done in, I think it was written in 1936 and recorded not too long after that. Um, and he kept it in his repertoire for years. So everybody, like so many high quality jazz people have covered this song that it's, it's become this thing in the jazz world where it's always different. You go to like a little jazz club, like there's a little jazz club in, in Dallas that I like to go to. And it's like, God, it's so small. It's so tiny. And it's always packed. And it's just one of the best jazz venues. Cause you get that feel. Cause it's in a, like a 1930s art deco building and the, the inside has that same architecture and you really feel like you're transported back in time at this place. And I've heard Caravan played by two different jazz bands there, and they're completely different constructions. But somehow or another, you know it's Caravan. So it really doesn't matter who's playing the song. You're never going to actually get the real feel for what Duke Ellington and his orchestra had in mind when they were playing it. And I guarantee you they probably played it different every single time too. It has the same fundamental structure all the time, but chord choices, you know, types of scales that you're using, it's it's like this. I don't know, it's like a playground for for jazz musicians to to play on. Um, it's a great song. It you know, it's one of my all-time favorites, but that that's gonna do it for the song of the day. Let's get into the daily train wreck. All right, man. Your daily train wreck is brought to you by My Legacy Kit on Twitter, and it's not him that's screwing up. He's he's presenting to us a screenshot of a series of statements that was made on some platform, <clears throat> like Telegram or or Discord or something like that of of CSW, our, our good friend Craig Wright, spouting off. So here we go. Let's let's get into it. <clears throat> there is no group. There are people who helped when I asked, Hal came in on 12 Jan. He helped on code after that. He was not Satoshi. The thing is, one person can do all that, but without others, I could not have done it. And no, Hal did not suggest Satoshi. Nobody did. I have used Japanese pseudonyms since the 80s. I liked Hal, but he never bothered to try and understand Bitcoin. That's right. Now Craig is so pissed off that he's taking pot shots at, at Hal Finney. I mean, God, the, the the sheer audacity of this person is just mind boggling by itself. Okay, so uh, what? Like I said, this was brought to you by to by uh, at my legacy kit or Arthur Van Pelt um, <clears throat> on Twitter. Let's let's see what he has to say about this. Go down to the second tweet here, and he says. Quote, he never bothered to try and understand Bitcoin, end quote. Oh, really, Craig? Because that's not how Hal is by his nature, right? Let's see what others with way more importance say about that. And then he's got a link to, to a For, uh, uh, Forbes.com article and a screenshot from it. And it it basically, I don't want to make this segment too long, but it pulls the rug under that one. My legacy kit continues. How did Hal Finney remember it himself? Then, completely the opposite it seems. And then he gives another one, and then he says this one: uh, "Quote Hal came in on 12 Jan 2009." End quote. Oh, really, Craig? Nope, you're lying. Hal came in on November the 8th, 2008, just after Satoshi Nakamoto posted the Bitcoin white paper. Hal was the first to write a thorough piece about it in which he showed genuine interest in the thing. And he's got a screenshot. Saturday, November the 8th, 2008, at 1057 a.m., (laughs) Hal Finney writes regarding bitcoin p2p e-cash paper. So he's writing it's it's time stamped. So again, Craig Wright is lying. He's just like I would anybody else have given the benefit of the doubt and say that he made a mistake, but since Craig is a serial liar, he didn't make a mistake, he's lying. His entire, you know, the the entire way this man operates is to try to to, to re-timestamp something using a computer that has had its entire operating system reinstalled and the clock reset and then without ever connecting it to the internet, put it on a printer and start printing shit so that the dates come off or, or creating PDFs or whatever. And he's gotten caught time and time again lying through his teeth about that. So again, here he is trying to... In 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 essence, redate Hal Finney's entry into the space for his own maniacal purposes, I suppose. But Hal Finney is a beloved figure in Bitcoin, and now he's trashing Hal and making it look like Hal didn't have as much to do with Bitcoin as we know he did. So fuck off, Craig. The last thing that he says uh, that My Legacy Kit says uh, is this. So, what was the true opinion of Satoshi Nakamoto about Hal Finney, exactly? Now, GFY, Craig, end. And he's this screenshot is from Satoshi on the boards, writing December the 11th, 2010 at 10.07 p.m. He says, he, or he's replying to this quote from Hal. Hal writes, I'd like to hear some specific criticisms of the code. To me, it looks like an impressive job. Although I'd wish for more comments. Now I've mostly studied the init main, script, and a bit of the net modules. This is some powerful machinery. So Satoshi responds to that by saying, that means a lot coming from you, Hal. Thanks. So here we are with Craig lying through his teeth again. And I'm not going to let this segment go without doing this one to continue on with the saga that is CSW. Craig Wright asked for 30-day extension to delay 500,000 Bitcoin payout. This is written by Helen Parts for Cointelegraph sometime, was it? Yeah, sometime this morning. On September the 17th, Wright's attorneys filed a new 30-day extension for all discovery and case deadlines, citing the need to facilitate the ongoing discussion with Dave Kleeman's estate as the parties have entered, quote, extensive settlement negotiations, end quote. According to the document, Wright's lawyers and Kleeman's estate have reached a non-binding agreement to settle the matter and are continuing to negotiate and finalize all relevant terms. Citing a number of upcoming case deadlines, such as Wright's opposition to Judge Reinhardt's sanctions order that is due on September the 24th and plaintiffs' motions for attorneys' fees on September the 20th, the defendant party claimed that reaching a final binding settlement is the quote best is in the best interest of both parties, and this requires the extension period. Mm-hmm. Following the court's orders on August the 26th, requiring Wright to hand over 50% of the roughly one million Bitcoin Wright allegedly mined with Kleiman. Wright's attorney, Andreas Rivero, first filed for a 14-day extension on, October, on August the 30th. In the filing, Wright's party also intends to challenge Reinhardt's order in favor of Dave Cleman's estate, which required him to pay 500,000 Bitcoin, arguing that Wright did not concede that the judge had the power to enter the order. <laughs> in late August, Wright suggested that Dave Cleman's estate could experience tax issues with Bitcoin that they won from him in the court case. God, this is just. This, this will not go away. This is just not going to go away, man. But you know, I don't know what I don't. I don't know what the extension is going to do for him. I really don't. I mean, I, we're I, and I think if I remember right, we're still waiting for Judge Bell, who is the actual presiding judge. Reinhardt was just the magistrate, like sort of an assistant judge probably because she didn't want to listen to the bullshit coming out of Craig's rights. so so she assigned a poor lackey to to go do it for her. She is not, as far as I know, she has not actually said yay or nay on on uh, Reinhardt's decision. And until she does, th- this whole damn thing is still open, okay? So keep that in mind. And also keep in mind that the liar is still out there and he's continuously trying to do whatever damage that he can do. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's a sad state of affairs, but again, your smoldering pile stands there in the corner. Terrible Joke Corner brought to you by at first underscore Jimothy, who writes, I don't often tell dad jokes, but when I do, he laughs.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: This is a really nuanced style of joke telling because it, it 100% depends on inflection of the voice when you say it pronunciation where you put emphasis, that that type of thing, because it could be told two ways, and one works and the other one doesn't. Like like this, I don't often tell dad jokes, but when I do, he laughs. Because so dad jokes, as a phrase, you know, as an object, right, like a, a thing. The other way is to say it: I don't often tell dad jokes, but when I do, he laughs. Well, that's just a sentence. So the difference between a joke a bad, a terrible, horrible, really bad, cringeworthy joke. And to sentence is literally a matter of simple inflection of the voice and the way that you, you know, roll, roll it off your tongue. And that's kind of, kind of important because that is so easily screwed up that it's just, you know, not even funny. Okay. Um, you guys know what's going on now. Um, I, there's really not a whole lot left to say. Um, Thank you for everybody who said happy birthday to my son. Um, I put a little video of his birthday card, which was uh, somebody actually wrote a song to put on a chip to load into a birthday card about space cats. So clearly I had to open that son of a bitch up and and take a video of it and send it out to to Hodel or not because he's everybody's favorite space cat. I thought he'd enjoy that. And some people wrote back and, and said happy birthday. People like Brady and... Some other people. And I wanted to give you guys a shout out for saying, you know, wishing my boy uh, a happy birthday. With all that said, I'm going to see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.